Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back to Midwretched. Welcome back to Mid Cicada Brood. We hope you're doing really well out there. And we're glad that you're here. And we're glad that we're here. How's life? Things about over here have been a little iffy. So I will share with our lovely fans. Um, the wonderful, wonderful hound that you guys have come to know as Murder Beagle. Um, last week? Yeah, last week. I feel like it's been so long since we recorded. He got rushed to the emergency vet. He was bloated. I thought maybe he had gotten into something. He needed a surgery. Um, it turns out that they found out that he has multiple sarcomas. And he is, currently has cancer. Which, at this point, by the time, I mean, it, 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 feel like, it feels like it happened really, really fast. Um, kind of came out of nowhere for us. But there's no surgery or anything that we can do. The vet said we can try chemo, but it will only give him kind of a couple more months. Um, which is rough. So, right now we're just kind of loving on him and taking care of him and seeing how things go. He is comfortable and happy and chasing bunnies and snuggling um so once we got him out of the vet they drained some of the fluid we got him on some medicine he seems back to his old self but it's kind of one of those things where we just gotta watch and wait and love on him and just appreciate him so so murder beagle is now cancer beagle and oh are we really calling him that i don't like that no, i don't like that no can we just call him we... needs needs love beagle no he is a needs love beagle yeah okay we love him but he is getting all of the love in the entire world he has gotten so many treats he got a week of special beneful beef stew formula oh my um which he was loving on oh my um, he got a whole week home with his mama because I got to cancel a trip to Utah. Hi, Alyssa. Sorry. I'll catch you next time. Aww. Um, but it's, it's good to see him yeah, up right. and bouncing around and everything. Uh, so when he was bloated, he was just, I could tell yeah. he was uncomfortable. And that's why we wanted to take him in. We just, you know, we're coping and we're loving. So Yeah. You're doing everything you can. Exactly. Um, but other than that, I have one other quick announcement. I have a quick ope. So from our last actual story and episode, the Cowher episode, one of our lovely Facebook group members corrected me when we were talking about the history of the Hmong people in Laos. I accidentally said uh, the Korean War, and I definitely meant the Vietnam War. Um, they were dealing with the fallout from the Vietnam War. So thank you, listener. I appreciate that. And also thank you. We are loving all of the activity and the conversations going on on the Facebook page. So. We really are, and we're so grateful. Yeah. We're so crazy grateful. Yeah. Keep on listening, mm-hmm. and we hope that you like this next one coming yes. at you from the Mitten State. Yes, that's right, from the great state of Michigan. So uh, I'm going to tell a story today that I find to be very, very jarring, and it's going to be – we have had kind of a while since we've gone old-timey, so today is kind of an old-timey. Oh. We're going back about 100 years. Oof. I love um, an old-timey. You know I love an old-timey. Yeah, for a, a good old-timey case. But before I get into some of the case details, I want to set some contemporary context a little bit mm-hmm. because um, I'm an educator, right? And um, today's case involves uh, a violent event at a school. Okay. 
so that got me thinking a lot about like just kind of how that works kind of in our contemporary consciousness a little bit you know I think about this a lot a lot a lot yeah yeah right and I'm sure your partner too has like like I think you're not you're never going to meet a teacher or somebody who works in a school that doesn't have like their own plan Mm -hmm. like in an emergency situation you know um And I think, like, a lot of that is because, like, if you're a millennial or younger, school violence is, like, a part of the fabric of your education. I think one of my, like, not earliest, but definitely a formative memory is learning about Columbine. And by learning about Mm -hmm. it, I mean coming home from school, turning on TRL, and that was all that was discussed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's exactly what I was just going to say. Like, I think for people, like, our age and some of our, like friends that are you know like when Columbine happened I was in sixth grade so you were in eighth grade no I think we were in the same grade weren't we maybe I was I I skipped seven oh yes we both would have been been in sixth Mm -hmm. so like people that were in high school or, or college at the time too like everybody knows everyone has a memory of learning about Columbine you know and nowadays we have like active shooter drills in schools and kindergartners learning how to huddle under tables and and things like that, you know, across the U.S. all the time, mm-hmm. you know. And like I said, like every educator you know has like the official plan and then kind of like their unofficial plan, right? Like I have friends that keep a baseball bat yeah. behind their desk or something that can be used to like crack windows or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like a little secret faster route. Maybe there's a loose window in the bathroom that you know you can get through, you know? Yeah, yeah. My partner, he's an elementary educator, and he is also like six foot three and a large person. So he is like the go-to in any of those situations. Yeah, he's a beefsteak. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and my two buildings ago, my hallway buddies and I came up with the plan that um, my neighbor teacher was uh, is six foot six six seven huge guy and I'm a shrimpy and so the plan was going to be that he would like hoist me up and use me as like a human like baseball bat basically to like you know and it was our, like our goofy plan but the fact that you have a joke even about that I think is really telling right yeah I feel like it's the only yeah. way that we've ever been able to cope with stuff like that right exactly like that exactly. that was our reality yeah exactly and that's the reality for kids now too mm-hmm. So, you know, I think because of that, like, we often think of Columbine as, like, the advent of school violence, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, you know, if people are less familiar, Columbine, Colorado was the site of, you know, a mass killing at the high school there on April 20th, 1999. Mm -hmm. And 12 students and one teacher were killed at the hands of two senior boys, Mm -hmm. Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris. Um, So what I want to kind of say about that, too, is, like, we have this kind of, like, event that we think of as, like, the advent of school crime. Yeah. And it's not even, like, as – it didn't – it was this awful thing that changed the landscape of education, I think, in many ways about, like, our consciousness around gun control in general. Um, just shifted a lot of understanding that we have, shifted a lot of our thinking on adolescence mm-hmm. and adolescent violence. It was kind of the first, like, big high-profile thing that brought into attention the idea that, like – Ooh, what if it's the video games? What if it's the music? All this kind of stuff. And I think, like, to the point even where we forget that Columbine is a 
named after a plant. Like Columbine doesn't even get to be a plant anymore. Now it's just a synonym for school shootings, you know? There's a street up the road that is called Columbine after the plant because mm. all of our street names are named after plants. And right. Yeah, every time I could drive down it, I'm like, it's weird. It's just not what that means anymore. It's just not what it means anymore. It is. You know? uh, it's, it's funny because, like, obviously there were plenty of incidents before that. I was, I was Googling because I couldn't remember the name of the shooter. But I always also think about the kind of known as the I Don't Like Mondays killer, Brenda Spencer. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was way before Columbine. But... I don't know. I don't know what it was about Columbine that just ingrained it in all of our memories. Yeah, I mean, the the totality of it, for one thing, um, I think, in large part, mm-hmm. how many people lost their lives. The fact that surveillance was there oh, yeah. and caught pretty much every... I mean, you can watch pretty much the entire thing go down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, like, it, it's this kind of, like, hyper-contemporary thing that I think, like represents a really big like culture shift Mm -hmm. for us you know so I was thinking a lot about that today um just kind of getting ready to talk about like a another like massive school violence event Mm -hmm. in today's case it's not technically a school shooting um, but it is what has been called a school disaster okay so today we'll be talking about the Bath school disaster in Bath Michigan before I get started into the story, 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 we have to give a shout out to our favorite true crime historian, Mr. Harold Schechter. <gasps> Yay, Schechter. Yes. Oh. Who, of course, has a fantastic book about the Bath School disaster called Maniac. He has a fantastic book about everything. He really does. He is just, oh, he is a godsend to Midwretched, I'll tell you that. <laughs> like, he has made so much money off of us this year. <laughs> oh, my God. It, so many of his books are based on Midwestern criminals, too. Yeah, like, they are. If you ever think yeah. about it, because I think he did a Dahmer one. Uh-huh. Um, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. And they're so well-researched, and we just we just love him anyway. so much. Fangirling so, aside. Yes, yes. So thank you, Mr. Schechter. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Bath, Michigan especially context of the time okay Mm -hmm. so uh bath michigan is a small town still a small town it's about it's in the middle of the mitten 12 miles northeast of the state capital which is lansing um yes good job holding up your mitten nobody can see that but (laughs) no but i think every michigander listening saw it in their hearts yeah you know they were doing it with me yeah they totally were so uh it in many ways, it's interesting. Like, we're going to kind of post-World War One era Bath oh, wow. for this case. But in some ways, it kind of feels like Bath has not changed at the rate, you know, that a lot of other places have. Mm-hmm. Like, it still is very, very small farming community. There's still no traffic lights in Bath. Um, it feels... Even though it's just like a 10-minute ride from Lansing or a 10, mm-hmm. 15-minute drive, it feels like being somewhere else. Yeah. We visited uh, when we were on our June vacation because I wanted to get some pictures and I wanted to kind of feel the vibes at the park mm-hmm. in the, out there, you know. Um, I'll talk about that later. But just even going from like East Lansing, which is just really like a hop, skip, and a jump to Bath, mm-hmm. it felt like a totally different, totally different space. Yeah. So um, – 
back in its kind of founding days, what was interesting about Bath, too, was that it's actually really tough land to farm. So it's a small farming community, but in some ways always had kind of a struggle because it's a really, like, swampy, marshy, wetlandy area. Mm, yeah. So because of that, like, really good swaths of land are kind of hard to find. And it seemed to me like a couple of key families really held, like, a lot of the wealth okay. in Bath. So like I said, we're going to 1927. And at the center of the Bath School disaster is a man named Andrew Kehoe. Okay. So we're going to follow him for quite a bit of our case today. <laughs> All right. He is the centerpiece. Mm-hmm. So uh, after World War One, we saw this like kind of huge change in this country, right? Oh God, yes. <laughs> um, industrialization like goes off like gangbusters and there's just all this like kind of post-war like rebuilding and Americana patriotism uh, and Bath was no different. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I don't think we talk about super often, but uh, what I love about this case is that it like brings all of my interests together in one spot, Michigan, education, history, <laughs> and crime. <laughs> like, it doesn't get any better than that for me. So nerd. one thing that I know, whatever, I love being a nerd. One thing that the post-World War One era really brought to us was the consolidation of schools. Yes. So kind of pre-war, you had that, like, country schoolhouse kind of feel. A lot of towns were built kind of with this idea that, like, Kids shouldn't have to walk more than a mile to school. So you had these, like, tiny schoolhouses kind of in the middle of these, like, farmlands. And, but you had kind of a lot of them, actually. Mm-hmm. People kind of forget that fact. So post-war, there was this big effort to consolidate schools and to create more of a K-12 through system rather than, like, the all the kids educated in one space. One room houses you know, and all of that. One room houses from ages, like, 5 or 6 to about 13, 14, you know, the 8th grade education. We start to see that real movement from that into kindergarten. Mm-hmm. What we know now is like kindergarten through 12th grade and then a graduation yeah. commencement. Because it was pretty right? rare to continue schooling past 8th grade mm-hmm. prior to yeah, World War I. it totally one. was. Yeah. Exactly. So what's really interesting to me about Bath is that even as like a small farming community, Bath really, really wanted to be kind of on the cutting edge of the like education revolution happening Mm -hmm. in the u.s at the time so there was this huge move in bath to consolidate all the farm schools and to build a big consolidated school okay yeah and that was like mostly really well supported in the community the some of the consternation did come from people who thought like well we're a farming community we don't need education past eighth grade for our kids you know kind of what's really the point of this But there were more people than that that kind of felt like they had this mentality that they didn't want the kids from Bath to fall behind the kids in Detroit and Grand Rapids and Lansing, Mm -hmm. you know, in these kind of bigger urban centers. I can appreciate that they're like, let's give them the choice. Yeah, exactly. And let's play the long game here a little bit. Like this, this is not going to be a trend that like goes away, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This is, you know, I think they had the foresight to see this is the way it's going to be, you know? Yeah. So the mentality was kind of like, let's get Bath on board, like, quick and really do this the right way. I appreciate the spirit of this progressiveness. Me too. Me too. You know who did not, though, was Mr. Andrew Kehoe. Mm. So he expressed some deep displeasure at the establishment of what came to be known as the Bath Consolidated School. 
So we're going to deep dive all the way into Andrew Kehoe later. Yes, I love a deep dive into a person. Yes. Yes. But for now, the basic facts are this, okay? So Andrew Kehoe was a local farmer. He owned an 80-acre farm Mm -hmm. with his wife, Nellie. Uh, And he was known for being, like, notoriously frugal. Um, So he kind of had a little reputation around town as being kind of a little scroogey. Might some say say. cheap? Yes. (laughs) Some some would, in fact, say cheap. (laughs) I feel like you're saying you're looking for every word but cheap. I, I was, I was. So thank you for filling it in for me. <laughs> so, Just count on me um, to be blunt and lose exactly. lack all social graces. Yes, and that's what I love you for. <laughs> so Mr. Kehoe, uh, he was cheap. <laughs> and uh, what comes with a huge education project like this is a big increase in your taxes. Yep. Right? And so he knew ahead of time, like, oh, man, the tax bill for this is going to be bonkers. I don't want to deal with it. And then the tax bill started to actually kind of roll in as things were getting underway with the school. Mm-hmm. So the chunk of his tax dollars that would have gone to the school when the uh, taxation for this started in 1922, the rate was $12 per $1,000 valuation of your property. So <sighs> his property was valued at about ten k in the day's dollars. Mm-hmm. So that means that he would pay $120 a year in taxes towards the school. I hate him so much already. Mm. Did he have kids? No, he did not. Of course. Of course. No, he did not. Yeah. That's where it started, right? And then the tax amount climbs over the years. Yeah. Right. A little bit. So it finally came to a head at about uh, $19.80 per $1,000 valuation. Mm Mm-hmm. So his amount specifically uh, would be 198 a year at its highest. Now, of course, in today dollars, that is about 2,300 bucks <laughs> over the course of a year. I live in I mean, Illinois, and I don't want to talk about other people's property taxes. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Right? I mean, as a new homeowner living in the state of Illinois. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh. I don't remember what ours are in this house, but they're not bad. But, you know, in any case, he was super pissed off. He did not love paying for something that he didn't think was a necessity. He was definitely kind of on the side of this is not a priority for our town. This is not a priority for our kids. This is an expense that we can't afford. And the Kehoe's may not have been able to actually afford it is is part of the thing, too. Their personal financial situation was getting to be pretty dire. Mm -hmm. So, like, outwardly, the tax bill just outraged him on principle. He did not believe in the cause. He did not want to pay for the cause, right? Mm -hmm. But it was also something that he technically could not really afford to pay. Okay. So I wonder how much that kind of fueled his anger a little bit, too. Now, Mm -hmm. oh, go ahead. I'm curious, because it sounds like he had a pretty sizable farm. Mm -hmm. At least a decent one. So I'm just curious kind of what led to his financial situation and kind of what some of the factors there were. We'll get there. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll get there. So where if you're angry about something going on in your community, what's a really good, like, productive place to channel that energy? Uh, mm, a town hall meeting? Local politics. Yeah. Bingo. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good, okay. And that's what Andrew Kehoe did at first. He took that energy, that negative energy, <laughs> and he at least put it in a – positive productive place which was local politics all right okay 
he was going to be active in his community as a result of, you know, not believing in the erection of the school. I said erection. I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to. Whoops. <laughs> I wasn't going to laugh until you did, but, you know. As soon as I heard it come out of my mouth, I was like, oh, God, what have I done? So, but that's what he did, right? In 1924, he ran for and actually won a spot as a school board trustee. Oh. And that was a three-year appointment. Mm-hmm. And then later, a couple of years into that, he was awarded a one-year appointment as its treasurer, mm-hmm. kind of concurrent with his spot as trustee. So he it was interesting that he kind of won this spot and was able to keep it, I thought. He did have a really good reputation for frugality. So I think the mindset was like, okay, this will be a guy that kind of keeps us in check a little bit when we're, you know, maybe being a little bit too pie in the sky. He's got an eye on the numbers. I think you know. I think when you have like a treasurer or an accountant, it's good to have somebody that's pretty frugal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And somebody who's going to like look for maybe the less expensive way to do something mm-hmm. or, you know, if this is the big idea, how do we make it like financially feasible, mm-hmm. you know? So he he did bring that to the school board, right? And that's why he was able to kind of keep his seat there. Mm-hmm. Despite uh, what some would say was a pretty bad attitude in general. <laughs> he was argumentative and he was gruff, especially with regards to those issues. He really bristled. And he ended up kind of building up a reputation that was kind of split. Like some people thought that, you know, like I said, like he brings us a dose of reality mm-hmm. and this is a good thing. Yeah. Other people thought he was kind of a negative Nancy that was basically a detriment to the children because he didn't want to let anything fly. Yeah. So as any educator will tell you, it's really important for the school board to have a good relationship with the superintendent of schools. Yes. That did not happen for Mr. Kehoe. He and Emery Hike, who was the superintendent of the Bath Consolidated Schools, butted heads constantly. I really love the name Emery. Me too. Me too. I also um, it took me a minute to get my head around the last name Hike because it's spelled like yuk, like goofy, like what goofy says. <laughs> so I was like, am I really going to have to say yuk every time? And then I watched a couple of videos and everyone said Hike. So I was like, okay. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> what is he, German? Uh, that's my guess. Yeah. That's yeah. um, a, a lot of German immigrants in that area, yeah. um, including a branch of my family, actually, mid state. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, Hike and Kehoe were not friends. They did not like each other. They butted heads constantly. Emery Hike was obsessively passionate, I would say, about Bath's ability to stay competitive with big city schools. So he pushed every initiative that would do that, every opportunity for their kids there, um, every single thing that he could do to give those kids the same edge Mm -hmm. that other kids had. So I love him. Because I tend to be of the same mindset. So um, do you can't tell. I. Don't get in my way yeah. in an IEP meeting. Just don't. Girl. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. IEP meetings are the worst part of my job. Mm. One of them anyway. They're like my favorite part of my job. But. Yeah, they would be. You're on the. I'm on the other side. You're on the it. side that's not going to get yelled at the entire time. That's why. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So what happens next with Kehoe and his kind of political career is that in 1926, the town's clerk died. Mm. And so he was actually appointed because of his success on the school board to be the temporary town clerk in her place. Okay. And he really relished that position. Mm -hmm. Sounds like he likes the power. 
he does. He likes the power. He likes the power. I think he likes being um, in the center of things. He likes being knowledgeable. He likes being the guy in the room that you look to and say, he knows what, to, you know, Kehoe's going to know what to say yeah, about why this. Why don't we ask Kehoe? He knows. Yeah, he loves that. He loves that. He thrives on that. And that comes to play actually in a couple of different ways later too with his personality. Mm-hmm. So now the clerk position was obviously an elected position. So he ran for proper election to that spot uh, the next year, 1927, when it came back up for re-election. Um, and he lost handily. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't just lose, but he lost. Lost. Like, yes. Like Trump yes. lost? Yes. And he was big mad, as the kids would say. Um, shocked, enraged, disgruntled, just completely unhinged by this situation yeah one of his first biographers actually was his neighbor monty ellsworth uh, who wrote a book called disaster about andrew kehoe and the bath school disaster um and ellsworth kind of brought in this theory that like the loss of that particular election was kind of his real tipping point into uh madness essentially okay interesting I'm not sure. Well, we'll see. So uh, (laughs) we'll see what y'all think about that later. So he did retain a spot on the school board, though. And uh, he also ended up kind of being like a de facto supervisor of facilities. That's what we would call them now, like the facilities guy, because he had like extensive farming and also mechanical and electrical knowledge. Okay, that's a good person to have. Yeah. Yeah, he was also like... In the building, fixing stuff, advising on stuff, like that sort of thing all the time on top of his financial duties, basically, with the school board. So, like I kind of alluded to before, life at the Kehoe farm was not the way that Andrew Kehoe would kind of project it, you know, to other people. It was not thriving. Mm-hmm. Figured. Yeah. By the spring of 27, the Kehoes had not made a mortgage payment in five years. Whoa. Yeah. Five years. Okay. Now, how they were able to get away with that was that the mortgage, and you kind of asked earlier, like, how did he come to be a landowner? The mortgage was actually held by uh, an aunt of his wife's. And uh, because of that, it was like kind of a more of a personal, like, gentleman's, gentleman's agreement. His wife had kind of inherited the farm and the land. So it wasn't as though they had purchased this land. I think that was more common than a bank loan at that time. So, oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So if, like, you know, great aunt whoever holds your mortgage she's gonna be like well the kids are struggling so let's let's give them some time you know (laughs) and that's just kind of how it was but everybody has their limits right yeah yeah and an 80 acre farm needs to generate money yes so the account holders were basically getting ready to serve Andrew Kehoe and his wife Nellie with papers on May 18th of 1927 Mm -hmm. But May 18th would end up going a much different way. Yes. So let's talk about May 18th. May 18th was the last day of school for that year. Last days of school always have and always did have, historically, this kind of like casual, festive air yeah. to them. It's a party. You know? It's a party. It's yeah. Fun. It's a celebration and it's chaos. Yeah. The rules don't really matter <laughs> as much. Um so, like many consolidated schools of the day, and like you'll still see in smaller towns, um, the school was all ages, mm-hmm. right, K through 12. 
And so seniors actually were not in the building anymore because they had taken their exams early. Mm-hmm. And then high school students who had been successful in their classes were excused from testing. So they were also like, there were a lot of kids like kind of out picnics on the lawn and just kind of chilling. And the site of the original school is atop a hill. And I imagine overlooking at the time some pretty beautiful farmland. Yeah. It was a beautiful sunny day. There were a lot of kids just like out, just like hanging out on the lawn because they didn't have to be in class, you know. And then the little kids got to just enjoy like a really easy fun day because they're not testing. Yeah. So it just has that like festivity, mm-hmm. you know, end of the school year casualness to it. That is one of my favorite days of the year. <laughs> Everybody's favorite day of the year. Yeah, it's just so nice. You get to just kind of let your hair down a little bit, you know? I think working in a therapeutic school, that's the thing I miss the most. Yeah, I bet. Because, like, since we have services year-round, there's not really, like, a last day. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. I mean, that's kind of how it is for Murder Husband, too, because his school is year-round because it's an international school. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't get, like, a summer break. He gets, like, two days off for Christmas. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't get that. Like, Like, today was a graduation and then a new session will start up on Monday, and they'll just have to kind of go again for another, like, nine-week session. Yeah, so. we flow from the end of the school year to summer camp, so. Mm, gotcha. That's tough. I am ending my summer break right now, so <laughs> please think of me next week <sighs> as I reenter real life. My boo has, like, two more weeks, and he is living them up like oh, a freaking 12-year-old be. boy. As he should be. He really should be. (laughs) Uh, So on the morning of May 18th, Andrew Kehoe and several other men, uh, including Emery Hike and Principal Floyd Hudgett and a few janitors, were gathered around a malfunctioning water pipe in the school's basement. Um, The weird thing about Kehoe, though, is he had no intention of being there that morning. Hmm. This usually would have been his jam, going to go fix something that was broken, coming up with some kind of like you know, MacGyvered solution to the problem. Sounds like my dad. Um, So, like, this would usually be, like, right up his alley. Mm -hmm. And he had just no interest that morning. And he was not even going to be in the building that day. He was actually driving away from the building or about to get into his truck when Albert Detlef, who was another board member, stopped him and was like, hey, hey, can you come take a look at the water pump? It's broken. And Kehoe said, oh, I can't. School is about to start. There's no time. It's 9.25. Detlef said, no, it isn't. It's 20 after 8. We've got more than an hour. School starts at 9.45. So Kehoe was like almost an hour off in what time he thought it was, Hmm. which was weird, right? So begrudgingly, Kehoe went with him. And by 9.30, they had all kind of figured out how to repair the water pump together and so Hudget, Hudget or Hugget, I'm not sure how it was pronounced. Hugget? Hugget. I'm going to say Hugget because it's cute. Um, <laughs> Mr. Hugget. Someone correct me if they know. Um, so Hugget left the school actually after it was fixed and went over to the Methodist church next door where a few of the senior girls were practicing their singing performance for the next day's graduation. Cute. I love it. Um, I, I also really liked and, your gesture. Our listeners couldn't oh, see that, but it was. Yes. It was exuberant. There's a flourish. I, I love a choir kid. And Kehoe himself actually vanished from the scene basically as soon as the pump was fixed. Like, I pictured it kind of like all these guys are like, hey, man, good job, good job. And they turn around to slap him on the back, and he's already, like, gone. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ghosted. So that happened at, at 930 was when uh, Huggett went to the church, thereabouts, 
At 9.45 on the dot, two explosions went off. One at the north wing of the Bath Consolidated School and one at the Kehoe Farm. The explosion at the school was so loud that people in Lansing could hear it. Oh my God. And it was reported to have injured people in smaller ways, upwards of a block or two away. Wow. From the flying debris. One woman lost her eye. She was about um, a block away holding her baby. Oh my God. And a piece of debris hit her in the eye, and she lost an eye. Luckily, the baby was okay. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Oof. So I picture this morning, um, and there are lots of survivor accounts of kind of what it was like in the building that day, yeah. and it was a lot like I described last day of school stuff. So you can picture, you know, elementary students in classrooms enjoying story time, which is often how days start in elementary school. Circle um, time. Yeah. Older kids, maybe a little nervous, sitting there final exams. Teachers, straight, chilling either way. It's a nice day. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> there was one anecdote I read that was really, to me, very touching. Um, in Leona Gudakunt's classroom, which was a second grade classroom, she had her kids gather around in a circle for story time in the back of the room. And Leona was known to be like a phenomenal storyteller. Mm-hmm. So the kids loved their story time. And on this day, they had actually begged her to tell a second story. They'd already gone through their first story. Mm-hmm. And they begged and begged and begged for a second story. While she was telling that second story, a brick wall at the front of the classroom collapsed as a result of the explosion. On to all of the desks that the students would have been sitting in had she not indulged them in a second story. Oh, my God. Yeah. A lot of survivors would recount not knowing what was happening, like one minute sitting in class and the next minute just laying beneath rubble. Yeah. That's all yeah. I can imagine, not even being able to process what just happened around you. Yeah. Some people would say they don't even remember the noise. They just remember, like, waking up, you know, with, like, a brick on their head. Or, oh, yeah. Or underneath a pile of stuff or whatever. Like, they couldn't say, like, you know, necessarily what they were doing right before. Oh, that amnesia know? is going to be, yeah, just abound in that school. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to kind of give you some of the numbers before I talk through some more of the details here of what happened. As a result of the Bath School disaster, 38 children died and six adults. Oh, my God. 58 others were injured. And there were a couple of deaths that happened afterward, like in the months and the couple of years after Mm -hmm. the explosion that could be easily attributed to injuries related to the explosion yeah, as well. Yeah, head injuries or bleeding or anything, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly, exactly. So this remains the largest mass casualty event in a school in the United States. It remains as such. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Principal Huggett runs from the church. He's at the church next door, and he heard the noise first. He runs out. And he's just in time to see the entire north wing of the school collapse onto itself. Mm-hmm. And he just runs into the mess to extract as many kids as he possibly could. A makeshift outdoor treatment space and morgue mm-hmm. was set up immediately on a space that became known as Hospital Hill by the people kind of there trying to help out. Wow. Locals also opened up their homes for people to just bring injured kids mm-hmm. into these houses that were nearby the school. And, you know, there would not... Basically, in any of those moments, feel like there was enough room 
to take care of the huge number of injured kids and bodies of those that couldn't be saved. Yeah. The school had an overall population of about 275 kids. Mm-hmm. On that day, the seniors were out of the building, like I said, and some of the high school kids were out of the building. So we don't know precisely how many kids were in the building that day. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to venture a guess, just based on those numbers, I'd probably say maybe a little shy of 200. Yeah. Yeah. So for there to be 58 injured and 43 total dead as a result of this is a huge amount of the population in that building. Yeah. So as what happens in a lot of times when we see these things happen in towns, a huge number of people came to help, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Everyone who could get to the school to help could. Several people had to leave because it was so upsetting to be there. Mm And they were just overwhelmed by the sight of it and the trauma of it. There were all of these senior boys that had been picnicking and hanging out nearby that came to help and lift children out of the rubble, both dead and alive, alongside basically every able-bodied person in town. Mm -hmm. Just came to just figure out how to get these kids to safety. At this point, no one's really asking what the hell happened here. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just in like emergency coping mode yeah right yeah but we can't forget that there was an explosion also at the kehoe home Mm -hmm. so at the same time so you know there was some wondering why everybody else was at the school to help with this but andrew kehoe was missing was his wife at home was anally at home we'll get there okay yeah um so at the farm like i said monty ellsworth was kehoe's closest neighbor Mm -hmm. And his wife saw a, the smaller explosion at the Kehoe farm mm-hmm. and ran in and was like, hey, Monty, something exploded next door. Now, they assumed it was just like a boiler blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. I was laughing. You I'm know? like, hey, something exploded over there. But I'm like, yeah, I can, yeah. I can see that, a boiler or whatever. And we'll actually talk later, too, about how uh, at this time it was really common for uh, farmers to use explosives to get rid of trees or boulders or stuff on their property. Because they didn't have, like, the equipment that we have today that gets rid of that stuff really quickly and efficiently. So explosions at farms were not that radical, Mm -hmm. you know? So it kind of went in one ear and out the other until they heard what happened at the school. So at that point, you know, they they make a run for it for the school to try to see how they can help and see what's going on. Now, while Ellsworth was driving, sometime that morning, he actually saw Andrew Kehoe alive for what would be one of the last times and kehoe was racing down the road in the opposite direction they both had pickup trucks and what ellsworth could see was that kehoe was grinning maniacally in his exact words ellsworth says this i could see both rows of his teeth i can see them yet that's upsetting yeah it's deranged right like you can picture that face and it's terrifying so he was so, so he was driving toward his farm then yes okay mm-hmm. but he would make his way back to the school okay so he pulled up to the school and the first thing that he did when he got to the school was that he there were differing accounts some people would say that emory hike just kind of walked over to the truck others would say it looked like kehoe kind of beckoned him over either way hike leaned into the window of the truck And witnesses said there was some kind of struggle between them. One witness claimed to see Kehoe fire a gun towards the back of the truck with Hike trying to get it away from him, like wrestling it away Mm -hmm. from him. 
Others would say that they didn't see a gun, but they saw Kehoe reach into the back and flip some kind of switch. Now, what happened next was indisputable. The entire truck exploded. According to witness Charles Rawson, quote, the whole car went up and the men went every direction. Oh, my God. The Lansing State Journal reported similar carnage, citing that both men were found in trees and in the grass upwards of 100 feet away. Parts of both men, I should say. Are we going to talk about what he used to make these explosives? Because this is extreme. We will talk about that. Don't worry. Okay. Don't worry. And there are pictures, and they're crazy. Um, So... Kehoe was identified, like his body was identified by witnesses saying that a patch of his scalp that was found nearby had his unique gray hair on it. That was kind of trademarked to him. And then Hike's body was identified by scraps of a checkered blazer he had been wearing that day. Okay. Two other men were killed as a result of the truck explosion, Glenn Smith and Nelson McFerrin. Smith died immediately at the scene mm-hmm. and McFerrin later while in care. God, this is a this is obscene. The yeah, number of people it really that. Is. Oh, okay. Yeah, when you really think about what this must have been like that day, mm-hmm. I mean, astronomical levels of carnage. And it's a war zone. It is. I was gonna say Bath is not a big place. Mm-mm, it's tiny. It's tiny. And like so this is literally the entire town is like yeah. in shambles essentially. And this next part is also really chilling mm-hmm. as the cleanup of the school continued, it was very quickly discovered that the bombing of the north wing was not the only part of the school meant to go up that day. Oh shit. Underneath the south wing, there was also a huge amount of explosives attached to an alarm clock. Okay. So it was very clear this was a duplicate bomb that had just failed. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Yes, yes. So basically the building was like pretty much thought to be in half, like North Wing, South mm-hmm. Wing. And had the second explosion take place, I think that double, if not more, would have lost their lives that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Easily, easily. So it, it was meant to blow up the entire school and to kill everybody in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jesus. So with Andrew Kehoe now obviously dead, Ellsworth and some other neighbors thought, like you did, what about Nellie? Mm-hmm. Where's Nellie? So a few would go back then to the Kehoe home site, which was now a blown out house, a pile of rubble, right? And there were two chilling images there at the farm that day that would just kind of stay etched in their brains for life. The first was the body of Nellie Kehoe charred and placed in a wheelbarrow it was not clear i see your face it is this is a face yes it is okay it is oh no nelly mm-hmm. looking at nelly's body the there was a tremendous injury to her head mm-hmm. it was not medically clear if she was bludgeoned to death beforehand and then um, was charred as a result of the explosion to follow. She hadn't been seen for a couple of days. So that was some people's thought. But that could not be proven because the head injury also could have happened as a result of the extreme heat to the brain, mm-hmm. causing it to kind of more or less explode. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it'd be so hard to tell. Yeah, there was just no way to tell. No way to tell. Um, and, you know, not being seen for a couple of days on a farm wasn't that alarming. It's People were not, like, scared for Nellie yeah. before the 18th, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. I'm... Yeah. I'm so mad that this comes down to property taxes. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about what else it might come down to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm, at the end of the day, what we know it comes down to is property taxes. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure, like, a normal, healthy person does not do this over property taxes. So I... Right. I, I I'm interested to know what else is going on with him, but to know that that was what this was. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm fuming. Yeah. I'll be curious on what your take is on the second thing they saw at the farm when they pulled up. Oh, Jesus. There was a wooden sign stenciled by Andrew Kehoe that read, criminals are made, not born. Fuck off. Yep. Yep. Fuck off. So he straight up set that scene. I don't think it was an accident either way that um, Nellie was in a wheelbarrow. No. Because no. it's not like you would crawl into a wheelbarrow, right? No, she was placed there. I'm, yes. I'm only curious if he meant to move her elsewhere. Yeah. So my opinion is that she was murdered a day or two before mm-hmm. the explosions. I don't have a lot to quantify that. It's really just the injury, the head injury in the wheelbarrow. But to me, that is suspicious. Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible that she could have been, this is awful, but blown into and landed in the wheelbarrow as a result of the explosion. It's possible. And I thought about that, too. But that's, it's a little bit too convenient of a landing. And yeah. with all of his other explosions, again, I hate to say it, but things didn't happen to land in one place. Exactly. Yeah. And we know that the explosion at the farm was somewhat smaller than that at the school, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't need as much to blow up a a farmhouse as you would a school. But you wouldn't burn like that from an explosion. Right. Right. Yeah, no, he he murdered her before. I think he murdered her beforehand. He murdered her beforehand. Also, that criminals are made, not born. That's some fucking, we live in a society bullshit and I'm over it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, property taxes made me... A criminal mm-hmm. made me a mass murderer of children, mm-hmm. literal children. Yeah, no, fuck off. Yeah. Now, before I get into some more of the both the fallout and the backstory, I want to uh, read off all of our victims. Yes. So many of them are children, so we don't necessarily know a lot about their lives. What you'll notice is that you'll hear a lot of repeated names, mm-hmm. and that is because it's a small town. There are a lot of siblings. Mm-hmm. Some families, will, I'll, I'll read off some names. One family, the Hart family, lost three of their four children and their matriarch, who was a teacher in the building. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. They had one child that survived the explosion. So Nellie Kehoe, the wife of Andrew Kehoe, was killed before the school bombing at an unknown time. Mm-hmm. Killed in the bombing itself, Arnold Barrel, age eight, third grade henry bergen age 14 sixth grade herman bergen age 11 fourth grade emily bromond age 11 fifth grade robert bromond age 12 fifth grade 
Floyd Burnett, age 12, sixth grade. Russell Chapman, age 8, fourth grade. F. Robert Cochran, age 8, third grade. Ralph Cushman, age 7, third grade. Earl Ewing, age 11, sixth grade. Catherine Foote, age 10, sixth grade. Marjorie Fritz, age 9, fourth grade. Carlisle Geisenhaver, age 9, fourth grade. George Hall, age 8, third grade. Willa Hall, age 11, fifth grade. Iola Hart, age 12, sixth grade. Percy Hart, age 11, third grade. Vivian Hart, age 8, third grade. Blanche Hart, age 30, teacher. Galen Hart, age 12, sixth grade. Levere Hart, age 9, fourth grade. Stanley Hart, age 12, sixth grade. Francis Hopner, age 13, sixth grade. Cecil Hunter, age 13, sixth grade. Doris Johns, age 8, third grade. Thelma McDonald, age 8, third grade. Clarence McFerrin, age 13, sixth grade. J. Emerson Medkoff, age 8, fourth grade. Emma Nichols, age 13, sixth grade. Richard Richardson, age 12, sixth grade. Elsie Robb, age 12, sixth grade. Pauline Schertz, age 10, fifth grade. Hazel Weatherby, age 20, teacher. Elizabeth Witchell, age 10, fifth grade. Lucille Witchell, age 9, fifth grade. Harold Woodman, age 8, third grade. George Zimmerman, age 10, third grade. Lloyd Zimmerman, age 12, fifth grade. Killed by the bombing of the truck, G. Cleo Clayton, age 8, second grade. Emery Hike, age 33, superintendent. Andrew Kehoe, 55, terrible person. Terrible human. Yeah. yeah. Nelson McFerrin, age 74, a retired farmer. Glenn Smith, age 33, who was the town postmaster. Beatrice Gibbs, age 10, a fourth grader, died later that week of her injuries. Richard Fritz, whose sister had died in the explosion, died a year later at the age of eight of myocarditis, thought to be a result of his injuries. Um, yeah. He's not considered to be an official victim of the explosion, but I personally count him. Yeah, I count because him. Because I, I think that that stands to reason. If he wouldn't have died otherwise, then he counts to me. Yep, exactly, exactly. So that is a really long list. And sometimes I think when we hear a list of names like that, it's easy to tune out a little bit. But every single one of those people was somebody's child, somebody's mom, somebody's teacher, somebody's sister. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody's brother, somebody's father. We want to make sure that we give that respect and that that we pay our respect to those people. So I also think when you hear a list like that, you have to wonder how in the world could Andrew Kehoe have wrought that kind of terror? Yeah. How in the world did we get to May 18th Mm. of that year of 1927? Yeah, I need to know what the hell. This isn't just property taxes. Right. How do we get there? So I will talk through Andrew Kehoe's life a bit. Now, when it comes to our old timey cases, like always, what's written down is like official records and stuff like that. Mm Everything else we kind of rely on, like anecdotes and 
personal accounts and stuff like that. And you'll see pretty right away here that some of that stuff is in conflict with each other, especially surrounding his personality. Yeah. And that kind of makes it hard to build a real kind of profile out of Andrew Kehoe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to talk about his life a bit. So Andrew Kehoe was born on February 1, 1872. He was the seventh of 13 children. And the family was from Tecumseh, Michigan, which is not too far from Lansing. Mm-hmm. Now, as a child, Kehoe was known to be very obviously fiercely intelligent. He loved mechanics and engineering. And at the time, electricity was this like really exciting burgeoning field, mm-hmm. right? And he was really, really into it. He took a big special interest in books about electricity, any kind of tinkering that he could do, you know, around his family farm. Mm-hmm. He was all about it. Um, he would build appliances and objects and like little, you know, mechanical doodads. You know, he flourished in what we would now call STEM classes in school. He was a science kid. He was a math kid. He was an engineering kid. He was a technology kid. Now, this is where like accounts of his personality get to be kind of dicey. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about like, when we think and reflect back about like bad people in retrospect, we're all looking for like, Oh, I knew they were kind of weird, you know. We're all looking for that, this is how I knew kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing a murderer personally, (laughs) I had some of those thoughts too when that person was arrested. Like, what signs did I see? And if I'm being honest, she was, is not a person that I like. Um, Somebody that made my life very, very difficult. Somebody that did a lot of crazy shit. But also none of that would I look back and say, you're going to kill a man in cold blood. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, it, it's so funny because thinking about, like, you you opened up talking about the Columbine killers mm-hmm. on Harrison Klebold. And so much of their story has been mistold because yeah. of people wanting to remember it in that way. Oh, they were outcasts. And oh, they were, you know, bullied and this and that. And now that we've gotten some time away from it, we know that that's not necessarily true. Right. Yeah. And I think we see that over and over and over again, right? Like it's it's all about our comfort lies in how much we can other other people, right? And we always want to other a murderer. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I'm not sure which account of Kehoe's personality to totally trust, but I have my own theory. So some people would look back and say that he was aloof, standoffish, kind of snobby, Mm -hmm. a little antisocial, that he would, like, explain to you what he was doing, but not really be, like, present with you, Mm -hmm. you know? But those are anecdotes. What was actually, like, clearly on record, like, in newsletters and in, like, school newspapers and stuff like that was that he had, like, clear records of belonging to a lot of social clubs. Mm -hmm. He was always in a social club his entire life. He also, like, as a young person, like, performed comedy shows with his friends. So by those accounts, not some scary outcast in a black trench coat in the corner. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't know a lot about his childhood otherwise. We know it's a big, big family, um, second generation Irish immigrants, and uh, a farming family, a small town family. His mother died pretty young. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly a tragedy yeah. in that family. Yeah. Not altogether an uncommon tragedy for the time, unfortunately. No, not at all. Um, yeah. 
So he attended what we now don't know to be Michigan State University in Lansing. Um, back then, it was the Michigan State Agricultural College. <laughs> and he had uh, he was really also just really good with all the farming stuff. Um, yeah. He, like, coached a chicken raising team at one point. Like, okay, whatever. All right, raise those do chickens. You. Yeah, do you, man. Um, so what's unfortunate is that we kind of lose Kehoe in his 20s and 30s a bit. Um, we know that he left Michigan for a time. He worked in Iowa and Missouri as a lineman, an electrician. And at some point in the early 1900s, he had some kind of accident that rendered him almost comatose and bedridden for two months. Okay, interesting. Do we have yeah. any, know anything about the accident? The nature of that accident was unknown. The best I can come up with, just looking at a few different sources, is that a couple of them alluded to it being a workplace incident. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it was something like a fall um, or something electricity related. I'm trying to think of things that had, had what would put you in a coma. It would... I mean, yeah, it was like a, it was a described as nearly comatose, like he's awake, but catatonic for a couple of months. Interesting. I'm assuming there's yeah. some kind of brain injury in there. Or yeah, I think he probably or something. Yeah, yeah. I think he probably fell and hit his head pretty hard on a work site. Yeah, that's my guess. Yeah. That's my guess. Um, he was bedridden for, like I said, about two months. Mm-hmm. And not too long after that, he moved back to Michigan in 1910. And the Kehoe household was much different than he left it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said before, his mom had died years earlier. And his dad, Philip, actually remarried a much younger woman. Oh. So, yes. So by the time that Andrew came back to, to come see Michigan, his dad was 69. And his wife, uh, Frances Kehoe, was only three years older than Andrew. Whoa, okay. Yes, yes. Um, and they also had a little girl named Irene. So he also has a new, like, step half-sister. At 69? Mm-hmm. He was getting it. I was going to say, I mean, get it if you can. Yeah. Yeah. He was getting it. Francis went by Fanny. So a, if you hear both interchangeably, that's why. Now, Andrew Kehoe hated Fanny. <laughs> hated her. And there wasn't really anything that I could find that gave like a quote-unquote good reason for that. Other than I think like Andrew came home and he, he it's not like he didn't know about his father's marriage or about his um, half-sister. Yeah. But it's one thing to know it and another thing to see it. Okay, but he's also like a full-fledged-ass adult. Yes, yes, it's, yes. He's like in his 30s. Yeah. yeah. It's not like he's eight mm-hmm. and this happened. Right, yeah. But we don't know to what degree he's kind of stunted. Um <sighs> He himself is single still, mm-hmm. which, you know, every year that goes by is going to be less and less common for a man his age to be unmarried. I'm also curious just is, and, and I've seen this just working in like doing assessments and things like that, that if he was very, very bright and brilliant before and then he has a head injury or mm-hmm. a hypoxia or something that impacts your cognitive skill, I have seen so much resentment as a result of that. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, too, like, I think there might be a resentment just, I think, based on, like, the pure embarrassment of himself coming home as, like, a single guy. Mm-hmm. And then here's his dad, almost 70, like, macking on a pretty young woman. Mm-hmm. 
you know, while he's still single. Now, we don't know to what degree he wanted to be married, so I'm kind of stereotyping a little bit, painting him with a broad brush. But, you know, between the jealousy and kind of that secondhand embarrassment that he may have been feeling, I mean, that enough could make you dislike your stepmother. I don't know. I'm wondering if he's... Aside from, like, a cognitive regression, there's suddenly, like, now he's dependent mm-hmm. on his family, Yeah, that right? too. That too. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a whole change in lifestyle status. Yeah. And I think also um, jealousy around the, the new daughter, Irene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't have a lot of accounts of what growing up in the Kehoe household was like. But God bless America. I am not restarting my computer right now. Um <laughs> We are on a roll, okay? That's right. That's right. We are in a groove. We really are. Um, What was I saying? I I imagine that like full love and attention may have been hard to come by in a house of 13 on a farm. Yeah. You know? So, and again, like that's just conjecture on my part, but to now come home and see his dad like fully like fathering a little girl after you know potentially having to share that attention with 12 other siblings as a little kid i i i guess i can see it it's just hard for me to think that like okay he was very successful Mm -hmm. this didn't seem to bother him before and yeah it's he's coming back but again you're a whole ass adult exactly yeah i'm not saying these are good reasons i know i know yeah I'm just trying to come up with, like, any reason at all. But (laughs) the next thing that we know of that happened just, I think, takes any real sympathy you're going to have for Andrew Kehoe at this point in his life and just kind of does away with it. because to begin with, so. Yeah, exactly. He um, disliked Fanny and Irene so much that he would actually murder the little girl's cat just because it annoyed him. Oh, go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I want to talk about an incident that happened in 1911. Mm. This was at the time seen as an accident, but you'll see why maybe in light of the bath school disaster, it could have been something else. <sighs> On September 17th of 1911, Fanny Kehoe went to take a match to the pilot light of her new gas stove. Yeah, I see your eyeballs growing. They're getting big. Yep. Now, gas stoves at the time were kind of a new Mm -hmm. thing. It was actually kind of a big deal to have a gas stove in your house. And they were considered to be very dangerous. Um, So she went to go light the pilot light, and the entire thing exploded. I hate him so much. Mm Mm-hmm. Fanny was caught on fire. Hearing her screams from the field, Andrew Kehoe entered the kitchen and reportedly watched her burn for a little bit before he threw some water on her now in large part the fire that had already started to take fanny was an oil fire so throwing water on her actually just made it worse yeah i hate him so much as you should now at this time his father and irene entered the kitchen And his father sent Andrew to go to the nearest phone, which was at a neighbor's house. So Andrew Kehoe would would go to the neighbor's house. And this is what the neighbor, her name was Hetty, recounted as their conversation. 
Andrew Kehoe shows up and says, would you call Dr. Tuttle? And I'm mimicking the tone that she reported that he had. Hetty says, is someone sick? No, Fanny got burned. Oh, would you call the priest too? That nonchalant. I hate him. Yes, that nonchalant. By the time that any care arrived, nothing could be done to save Frances. She was burnt beyond recognition, somehow still clinging to a few more minutes of life. Mm -hmm. She actually sat dying in bed for about two hours Mm -hmm. before her injuries finally took her. Now, at the time, like I said, gas stoves were seen as really dangerous. Mm -hmm. You can go back to this era in time. You search for gasoline stove or, you know gasoline oven in newspapers.com and all you're going to see from this era is a story of an explosion after explosion after explosion yeah yeah so nobody thought it was anything but a tragic accident Mm. it's only in retrospect that we wonder if kehoe rigged it so that it was bound to blow her up at some point when she went to go light the pilot with as nonchalant as that response was like and, Mm -hmm. and again like what why what did she ever fucking do to you Right, exactly. Nobody that he hurt did anything to him. No, they didn't. It was all symbolic. That's the thing that gets me. It was all symbolic. Uh, so just no regard for human life at all. Or animal life. And we'll talk more about some of the things he did to animals in a minute, too. Uh, about a year after that, he himself would finally get married. He was 40. Uh, he married Ellen Agnes Price, who went by Nellie, as we know. Nellie was 37 when they got married. They had a lot in common. They were both, you know, on the older side for getting married, kind of out of what they saw as their, like, childbearing years. It didn't seem like either of them really had an interest in having kids, so that wasn't, like, something that they were, like, striving for anyway. Mm -hmm. Nellie came from a very wealthy family. Not to say that that was part of the draw for Kehoe, but, you know, it's not a, it's not. It's never a turnoff. Yeah, it's not a turnoff, right? Um, a prominent political family, actually. Um, one of her grandparents was a war hero uh, in the Civil War. Just a very prominent family. They had known each other at Michigan State and then, like, reconnected mm-hmm. kind of later on and got married. And like I said, they had a lot in common. They're, you know, being a little bit older for the time to get married. They both had an interest in education, for whatever reason, Andrew Kehoe had, would say that he had an interest in education. They both have this, like, Irish Catholic kind of backdrop and immigrant story and things like that. And they kind of experienced what, what some would describe as, like, some kind of family pressure, like big families trying to stand out in a big family. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot in common. And at first, they moved into the Kehoe farm in Tecumseh. You know, along with Philip Kehoe, Andrew's dad, and Irene, his uh, little half-sister. So Philip would die not too long after his wife Fanny did. And so the Kehoes ended up taking care of Irene for a time. Mm-hmm. And then in about the mid-19-teens, 1917-ish, Nellie's very wealthy uncle... Lawrence Price died and left her a whole bunch of his stuff, including the 80-acre farm and bath. Okay. Yes. So um, now the farm, it's an 80-acre farm. It's huge. Yeah. 
It has a three-story house on it, a huge barn. And, you know, like I said before, the farmland in Bath was dicey. There's a lot of wetland and marshes. Yeah. This was 80 acres. Yeah. Yeah. It's mushy. It's beautiful. The I love it up there. I was born up there. So it speaks to my soul. I'm a marshland in my spirit. Um, But this was 80 full acres in Bath that was almost all farmable. Oh, wow. Yes. In one spot, that's really, really rare. I was going to say, he took care of her. Jesus. Yes. Yes. 100%. So uh, they still had to technically purchase the property mm-hmm. at a, a you know a pretty intense discount and so the aunt julia was the one who um kind of ran the estate so you know they moved onto the farm and they you know they farmed the land they he never raised chickens which was kind of weird because it had a beautiful big chicken coop <laughs> but you know not um, everybody wants to raise chickens like you do yeah, I know, right? Like, it's kind of my dream, but whatever. Um, and then at that time as well, they decided to then sell the Kehoe farm in Tecumseh, which was not of negligible size either. It was a 40-acre farm. So to my mind, I think they came into a lot of money very quickly. Yeah. Which can sometimes be dangerous if you're not used to having money at your disposal. Had Kehoe or Nelly been working prior to that? Because it sounds like from the time that he had his injury and moved back to Michigan... Was he working or off and on or? He was still working, okay. but I think it was kind of off and on. Okay. Yeah. Mostly helping around the farm. Yeah. I think that's what his work, you know, really was. Yeah. So kind of working for his keep in a lot of ways right. there. Um, so, you know, they move into Bath. It's a small community. They stand out because they're brand new, right? Um, and so he kind of quickly built this reputation as uh, a really neighborly guy. He liked to help and fix people with their stuff on their farms. He still had that mechanical interest. You know, he would come over and help out with any kind of mechanical or, or electrical issue that people had. He had a good reputation okay. in large part. And Nellie did too. They both joined a lot of like social clubs. Mm-hmm. Nellie was a member of the Ladies Friday Afternoon Club. And it sounds like they wear fancy hats. Yes, exactly, right? Like, it's kind of like a little red hat society. You know, so they kind of went, dove right into the bath social scene, right? Um, It sounds like they came into a lot of money, but can they maintain it? Exactly, Uh. exactly. Um, Now, Andrew Kehoe was all about maintaining a lot of appearances. So even though he lived on and worked an 80-acre farm, he was known to always be dressed to the nines. Live below your means, people. Live below your means. As soon as they were available commercially, he bought a Ford pickup truck. So, you know, I I think he kind of, they came into wealth quickly and they blew it pretty fast. Yeah. Sounds like it. Basically. Because like I said, by 1927, they were at foreclosure level debt on their property. Yeah. Right? And the the aunt, like I said, had had enough. Now... When everything started with the school, which that first taxable year was 1922, Mm -hmm. in that space of time, I think, is when we really start to see quantifiable evidence of Andrew Kehoe losing his damn mind even further. So It's interesting because I know a lot of times when we talk about killers, we talk about, you know, head injuries, frontal lobe injuries, and all of that stuff. mm -hmm. And while he sounds like he was an asshole, I'm not seeing, like, a massive, like, overall change in his personality 
like a massive right. increase in like in overall aggression. We have these incidences, but they're mm -hmm. not random. They're not impulsive the way that we would typically think for a head injury. Exactly. Exactly. What they are is angry. Calc now, there's one incident calculated. on the record. They're calculated, and they all have this common thread. There's one incident in his life that the, the year is not known, but the story is that a priest came to his door asking for money to help build a new church, and he refused to give them anything, and then went on like a tirade about how people were always trying to take advantage of him. So I think when the whole thing with like the school tax came up, I think he was starting to feel as though people were trying to take advantage of him, like left and right. I think he had a really strong victim mentality and a really strong, like, um, I'm already doing everything I can do. How dare you ask me for anything? Just pay your motherfucking taxes. Exactly. We all do it. We all do it. You know? That's literally all anybody's asking for you. Maybe a tithing at the church. You can say no. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, that was part of, you know, his story as well. And then all of these things started to happen with the, the school taxing, right? And that kind of takes us back to the beat where I started with the story. Mm -hmm. There are also two instances of animal cruelty I want to talk about in this space of time. I know, I'm sorry. Um, and one of them, yes, because I'm about to talk about a dog. Now, in one of those instances, a neighbor came over looking for her lost dog. Andrew Kehoe very plainly said, it kept barking, it was pissing me off, so I shot it. And he just killed this woman's dog. Like, it was barking near his property, and he shot it down. Mm -hmm. Another instance that really, really got under my skin was that he was known to work his animals extremely hard um, on the farm. And uh, Monty Ellsworth would tell the tale of a day that Andrew Kehoe worked a horse so hard that the horse was no longer able to do anything. So Andrew Kehoe beat it to death. What the fuck? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So when you look back, I think, and I was going to ask you about this, for those markers for psychopathy <laughs> and though like the, what, like the triad or the... The McDonald triad? Yeah, um, that we look for when we're looking at serial killers and things like that. Like, so those, I mean, those are the there things, are a lot of boxes he checks, but those are the things that we're looking for more so in childhood. Yeah, in his 40s and but if we think about that head injury as causing some kind of regression, but that's, can that it sounds like such a slow regression, though? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's not a sudden thing. So I would be very, very curious looking. Are there seizures? Is there a brain leak, some inflammation, something like that mm. happening? Also, it sounds like we don't have a good baseline for what he actually was like as a child. Right. Exactly. Exactly. One thing that I'm really curious about is like, oh, he was so social and he was so outgoing and all of that stuff. We also know that like. This is a lot of antisocial people are. A lot of narcissists mm -hmm. are. I'm hearing yes. a lot of narcissistic triggers. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. Talk more about that. Well, he's hitting a lot of narcissistic triggers just in terms of like he's living above his means. He cares so much about his appearance and how people think. 
I, I'm very curious about kind of like what that trigger of seeing his father with a younger person and him experiencing that significant change in station in his life of going through that injury and then moving back home after being this brilliant, successful child and blah, blah, blah. What that did is like an ego injury. Mm. Um, because it seems like that's where he really started spiraling down. Now, yeah. it's the 1920s. It's not like we're going to have MRI results to see if there right. is inflammation or anything like that in the brain that could be changing yeah. this personality. But again, it sounds, it's so calculated. It's so cold. Mm-hmm. And it's so disconnected from emotion. Yes. That, yes. Uh, God, I want just a really good developmental history of him to be able to find that baseline. I know. Me too. Me too. And I feel as though, like, yeah, like you said, we don't have a lot from his childhood that we can count on. We don't have anything like MRIs or, you know, stuff that we can point to to say, this is this, this is that. What we also don't know is just, like, we have all these incidences that are on the record, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What we don't know is how many are off the record. Exactly. Exactly. You know? So we don't know. There is no real indication of, you know, are the incidents that I know of the breadth of it? Or is there more that we don't know because it never got talked about or the right person wasn't interviewed or whatever you know what I mean or that it was just never thought of as like a major incident you know maybe he was you know hurting farm animals as a kid and we just don't know because everybody's like oh like a bunny died here whatever like right yeah exactly this is an operational farm like exactly stuff is gonna happen yeah yeah you know we don't know what his social skills actually were like or what his relationships were like I would love to know what his actual relationship with Nellie was like me too. Me too. What what I've been able to research about the two of them is that I think they what another thing they had in common was kind of an obsession with keeping up appearances. Mm-hmm. But also like a grave actual distrust of people. And people would talk about how Kehoe was like skeptical of like anything you had to say. Basically just like distrustful, evasive, right? So like social and engaged and interested in things but also like highly highly unusually skeptical right so like a bit of superficial charm mm-hmm yeah i'm here yeah. i'm hearing a lot of like antisocial and a lot of narcissistic things yeah i think so too so oh did you have something else i don't know i'm just thinking about even just like the nature of the crime it, it having to be so big and so extravagant mm-hmm. and you know it's not like he went after Hugit or Hugget, however we're deciding to say his name. Right. like Or Hike, who he really had a rivalry with. Yeah, or he's not going after political officials that were responsible for the tax increases. He is like, mm. I'm going to make a big fucking statement. Yes, yes. And I want to see your take after I tell you this next bit here. So you had asked earlier how he came to get so much explosion. Yeah. Explosion? Explosive Lots of material. Explosions. Yeah, so many explosions. So how'd he do it? So uh, this is where things get interesting. He had been beaten to that election, like I said, on April 5th, 1926, for that town clerk position. And some people would say that he started his plan to blow up the school not long after that, actually. I feel like there's a lot of narcissism and antisocial politicians 
I feel like there's mm. probably a good chunk of research to support me on this. I feel like there's got to be, right? There's got to be. Basically, why people think that he started early was because in the summer of 1926, he spent a lot of time at the school over the summer. He would have had full mechanical access to the building to start planting those bombs underneath the building, which is what he did. And also in 1926, he started to buy a lot, a lot, a lot of this explosive called pyrotol, which was a war surplus good that was basically like post-war kind of marketed to farmers as a way of blowing up all the crap on their land, right? So that is, again, why no one really took any raised eyebrow to seeing Andrew Kehoe buying a whole bunch of pyrotol over the course of the year. Well, this would have been long before the days of, like, tracking any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he bought over a ton of it. What? Like, over a literal ton of it. Oh, my God. But again, like, over the course of of an amount of time, right? Yeah. Um, And so, again, like, nobody thought it was weird for somebody to walk into a store and buy some Pyrotol. He also had small amounts of dynamite as well. Pyrotol was just a lot easier to come by because it was in such a surplus after the war. Mm -hmm. And because it did have that, like, specific marketing towards farmers. Interesting. It's it's sounding more Unabomber-ish than anything else, which we know. Yeah. 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 Um, That's really interesting, too, because the next thing I was going to say was that he had also bought um, gasoline he had purchased lengths of pipe mm-hmm. to basically build, you know, this massive bomb that he attached to a few alarm clocks. And the bomb that went off at his house was of the same mechanism. Mm-hmm. He does sound... He had also... Yeah. Oh, Sorry, just, he, he feels like a really early Unabomber. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, because of the context of the school, you know, like the natural inclination is to talk about it in the context of things like Columbine and stuff like that but there's also this like I don't know there's that Unabomber connection there's also like the kind of like going postal workplace Mm -hmm. like you know I think the political bent makes me relate it more to the Unabomber and Mm -hmm. things like that yeah yeah and he saw all of those political situations as personal attacks and personal slights against him right like this this for him was all very very personal Mm -hmm. the other thing we know about his purchases was that he bought a gun uh in late 1926 okay but again a farmer buying a gun it just doesn't strike anybody i wonder if he wasn't buying a literal ton of explosives if he maybe could have paid his tax bill yeah right just yeah, throwing that out that there. 198 dollars a year was probably not nearly as much as he spent on a thousand pounds of pyrotol. Yeah, right. Just throwing yeah. that out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other really deranged thing that he did was that he outfitted his truck with basically shrapnel, so that when the truck exploded, that it would cause widespread damage okay i was curious about the truck explosion because you had said that mm-hmm. kind of they were in possibly a tussle and he shot the gun i was like was that could that have been an accident but it doesn't sound like it now that you say that Mm-mm. no he had basically outfitted the truck to be like 
a walk, like a, a walking, I say walking, I'm so tired, um, like a war device on wheels, yeah. basically. Yeah. Like that was a, it's a grenade. you know, it's a meant to grenade. cause mass destruction. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so were those were kind of the preparations that we know that he had done. The other context I forgot to give you, and I'm sorry, so we have to backtrack for a second, <laughs> is that uh, Nellie, prior to her death, was also quite ill. Oh. She had just been discharged from the hospital with tuberculosis. Oh. Um, so she had survived tuberculosis. And in the we don't know if this was real or not, but after her discharge, went to go see friends, according to Kehoe, when he was asked, hey, where's Nellie been? So that could have happened. But it may not have happened. And those friends would say later that it did not, in fact, happen. Her body was also found with several banknotes, as in money, cash money. Okay. Don't know if that was purposeful or not. Hmm. Like if that was left around her body or if that was just part of the debris that ended up with her, you know, for one reason or another. Um, My other kind of pet theory is that he put her and the banknotes in the wheelbarrow with the intention of burying all of that, and then perhaps just ran out of time. Was she buried with a lot of banknotes? Um, not like a lot, a lot, huh. but enough to be notable. Hmm. You know? Curious about that. Yeah. So... Huh. That is basically the bath school disaster. I want to talk a little bit about some of the after effect. So um, after everything happened and the cleanup and um, and all of that, there was a degree of question in the community if there was any kind of criminal negligence, like on behalf of the school board or the school employees mm-hmm. um, that allowed Kehoe to comport himself the way that he did. Mm-hmm. But basically, it ended up being ruled that his behavior was so normal up until the day of the 18th that there's no way that anyone could have known that something was going to happen. I was going to say, it doesn't sound like there were red flags that anybody would have recognized. Nothing that you mentioned. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, you know, but I think just like we are, people at the time were looking for any way to explain, any way to... And there's also, like, like, he died at his own hand. So there's not justice the way that people want it so you know i think there's this impetus to still find somebody else to blame yeah right but at the end of the day the court did not find that there was any ability to hold the school or its board or its employees responsible for kehoe's yeah. behavior yeah. um there was nothing that they could have seen and reported on nothing they could have seen and stopped yeah Ugh. it was a total mystery um i think you're right when you say that when when it ends like that and they take their own life we just we're not satisfied. Right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel, you know, the C word, it doesn't feel like closure. Yeah. Right. You never get your questions answered. You never get that, like, bang of the gavel. Yeah. Bong, bong, you're in jail. You know, well, and I think it's also like, it like you don't get to end this on your terms. You end this on our terms. Exactly. You know? Right. Like, we get to exert justice over you, yeah. not your idea of justice exerted over yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, obviously, they had to rebuild the school. Mm-hmm. The school was rebuilt a couple of times. Uh, how it looks today is that there is a park at the original site of the school on the top of that hill. And the hill itself, when you stand on the top of it, overlooks what is now the Bath school system. Mm-hmm. So the new school is kind of across the street from it. 
when you go to the park, I found it to be very, um, I found it to be a really somber experience yeah. for me. Um, and I think my husband would say the same when we went to go see it. When you go to the park, it's called James Cousins Memorial Park. At the center of the park is the cupola that was at the top of the school building. Mm-hmm. So they have that, and it's. I'll put a picture up. I was really excited to be able to take my own pictures for social media this time. (laughs) It's like a little white chimney structure with a little red dome on top. Um, It's got a little picket fence around it so that you can't see it. Like you can't really, you can't get in there. You could touch it, but you can't get in there. Is it called a cupola or a cupola? I always thought it was a cupola. Maybe that's just me. Well, I don't know. I see it as cupola. All right, cupola, cupola. Maybe I just like to put Mm. my own flair on words. Maybe you're like cupola. Cupola. Um, I was also really touched like there's a a plaque when you walk into it with all the names on it and um, there's a Michigan historic site marker that has kind of the whole story on it and then what I didn't realize right away was that when you're walking up to the site the bricks are also um, engraved with the names of victims as well oh wow so there are multiple ways in the park um, that all the names are memorialized Mm -hmm. And I was really touched by that, that there was just like more than one way, you know, to remember and, and keep an eye on them. So I think the park is a really lovely tribute. I was really struck by how still and quiet it was for like a beautiful day mm-hmm. in June. We were the only ones there. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of sat. There are some benches um, next to the cupola. And we just like sat there and kind of just thought about the story for a while and thought about all of the victims and especially the babies and and their teachers and um like the the thing about the park is that it really forces you it drives you to grieve those people the way that it's structured and the way that kind of its vibe is yeah yeah i can appreciate that yeah me too i thought it was a really it was just a really touching place to be to be totally honest with you God, I can, it had to have been hard being a survivor of that and trying to continue to go to school and trying to continue to go, like, I don't, just to live there, knowing what happened to your friends and your family. Yeah, yeah. And I think for those parents, too, like, you know, that lost, you know, two of their five kids or, Mm -hmm. or what have you in that, like, how do you as those siblings go back to school? How do you, you know... How do you, as a parent, like, feel good about sending your kid mm-hmm. to school, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's something, like, we think about that as kind of a modern phenomenon, too. Like, we had a bomb threat in my building last year, a shooting threat, and I didn't feel good about going to work that day. Yeah. And a whole bunch of people called in. Yeah. Um, and I didn't call in. I went, but I was nervous all day long, yeah. right? So I was nervous just at the threat. I couldn't imagine how it would feel to go back after actually going through something that tragic, you know? Yeah. And that at that scale. Yeah. So that is the story of the Bath School disaster. And even though it's old timey, I think we really should take some time to think about and remember those victims. You know, those people would have been, you know, in 1927, if the average victim was like eight, those people could still be alive today as, you know, hundred year old people it's you know it's interesting because like a lot of with a lot of our old timeys you know they feel old timey they feel Mm -hmm. like in the in that period but this one maybe it's the school thing maybe it's the politics but it feels contemporary yeah it really does doesn't Mm it it doesn't have that like old timey i don't know removal yeah 
to it. To me, it feels very immediate. Yeah. Some of the, the reasons why I occasionally like doing an old timey is because like, okay, this does, it feels distant enough and it feels removed mm-hmm. enough that it, it, it's a breather. This, yeah, it, I don't get that from it. Not, yeah. Not a breather. Sorry. Yeah. I wasn't giving you a breather. Damn it. We need a breather, girl. I know. What are we doing next week? Um, it's not as heavy. I'll give you that. Okay. I mean, it's still, some call it a spree, some call it a cereal. Mm. Um, but we're going to go more cerebral on this one. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So next week we are going to cover a, a really interesting case. The case that kind of set the precedent for moving trials and what we currently consider <gasps> a fair trial in a media landscape oh my gosh this is going to be so interesting and i'm very excited i know you love a courtroom intrigue yes get ready for some courtroom intrigue oh i'm so ready i'm so ready i need it i need that in my life we've been doing a lot of heartstring tuggers so we're gonna Mm -hmm. do i'm gonna go back into my element and do a brainy case yes i can't wait to get into our brains It's very exciting. Very exciting. So if your heart is feeling exhausted like ours are from everything in the world right now. Um, yes. <laughs> come back and exercise yeah. your brain a little bit on this one. Yeah. It's healthy for us, right? <sighs> it's good for us. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I guess we should um, say our goodbyes for the day. I want to, again, just like, oh my gosh, hi and welcome to everybody <laughs> that has discovered us in the last couple of weeks. We are so glad that you're here. All of our new followers we have, love you so oh much. Oh my gosh. We have been like bowled over by the recent explosion in uh-huh. Wretched Listens. I about passed out when I checked the stats. So yeah, I, yeah. We, thank you guys. So we like to get ourselves like little gifts when we hit milestones. Yeah. And we were getting so close to one of them. And I was like checking it. I was like, oh, we're going to hit our milestone today. And then we just blew beyond. Like we're so yeah. far beyond. And we didn't even have time to talk about our gifts because it felt so like distant that we were going to hit this milestone. <laughs> I know. So I was like, I did not think we were going to hit that before 18 months. Maybe, oh, you no. know, I was our, my goal was to hit it before a year. And yeah, I mean, damn, yeah. And now we've ex- we've we've just exceeded it and we're so happy. So thank you for checking us out. Thank you for liking and following and emailing and messaging. We get every single one of them. If we yeah. were slow in responding this week, it's because of Murder Beagle. And I'm trying life explosions. Life explosions. And, yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. Keep interacting with us. Keep talking with us. Keep sending your case requests. We just got a really, really cool one that I'm excited to do. I'm yeah. I'm killing our our Midwestern region because it's slightly outside of it, and I don't care. It's really <laughs> it happens. It happens. It's a really interesting case. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, just thank you. Thank you, guys. We're really just we're beyond Ugh, yeah. bold over yeah we're beyond so you know please come back we hope that you have good reason to come back yeah. we're um, on the social we really mid yes. facebook instagram email us yes midwretched at gmail we love emails too mm-hmm. so yeah keep talking to us you guys and until then be nice and eat cheese and we love, love you. you murder beagle loves you too Yeah, he does. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.
No, don't want to do that. So like the further out you zoom, the spikier it will look. The further in you zoom, the flatter it will look. Um, that is a true fact. And I am a dum-dum. <laughs> so let me just get my zooms back where I like them to calm myself down. And then we can get started with my story. 